0: Welcome to Left Out, reality-based independent radio on WRCT 88.3 FM and podcasting on the World Wide Web at leftout.info. Left Out discusses the news from a perspective left out of the mainstream media. I'm Bob Harper. I'm Danny Slater. Today's program is produced by Matt Horniak. Listeners, as always, are invited to call the program at uh, 412-268-9728. Unfortunately, we won't have electronic mail today, so don't bother sending us mail, uh, at least if you want us to comment on it during the show, but do feel free to call at 268-9728. Before we get started today, it was just a brief announcement I wanted to point out that uh, the Senate this week is in the apparently the final markup c- phase of the new uh, telecommunications bill that they're introducing, where one of the provisions that may happen, one of the things that may happen as a result of this bill, is an elimination of network neutrality, which uh, what it means to you in simple terms is the possibility that the large corporations that control the uh, the Internet service that provide, for example, the Internet backbone and so on, will be able to give different quality of service and different preferential treatment to, no doubt, large p- money-paying commercial sites and choking out independent uh, independent sites on the web. So I would encourage you to uh, pay close attention to this. There is a uh, website with some information called SaveTheInternet.net or dot. I think it was .net, um, Save the Internet, .net. I think it is, or .org, um, one word, uh, with uh, the latest information and uh, keeping you up to date on what you can do about this if you're interested in doing something about it and what the latest is happening in the legislative process. I haven't checked it since this morning. It's literally something that's going on as we speak.
1: I called my senator today, uh, well, Spectre, and told him that he's he, promoting net neutrality as well as the um, – the other bill they're considering the uh, repeal of the estate tax. Oh, not yeah. Repeal the estate tax. Oh, yeah. So that, yeah. that's
0: that's another one. We can get back to that a little bit later. In fact, our, our guest today may wish to comment on that. Uh, we're very honored and pleased today to have as a, as a guest uh, David Sirota, who is a writer and political strategist whose work appeared in a number of, area, number of places, including uh, well known sources like the San Francisco Chronicle or the Washington Post or The Nation. And he's also regularly appears on television and CNN, MSNBC, Colbert Report, and uh, NPR. He's a founder. And co-chair of an organization called the Progressive Legislative Action network, Legislation Action Network or Plan, which is uh, a, a, a political action network intended to support progressive legislation. And he was previously a fundraiser for Congressman Joe Huffle, who was a guest on Left Out when he was running um, as the, against Arlen Specter in the 2004 elections for Senate, unfortunately unsuccessfully. And David was also formerly the press secretary for Bernie Sanders, who's a, uh, a representative from Vermont, who many of us. Uh, uh, Listeners on Left Out will know and uh, and like. Uh, David has published a new book called uh, Hostile, "Hostile Takeover." The subtitle is uh, "How Big Corporations and Corruption, uh, How Big Money and Corruption, Conquered Our Government and How We Take It Back." Uh, and we'd like to have David talk with us today about uh, about his new book and about his thoughts there. David, uh, welcome to Left Out.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So uh, maybe you could just begin with. Um, well, I've been reading the
1: book and I think it's an excellent book. But I think maybe you could just uh, begin with a summary of. Uh, what you were trying to do with the book, and, and um, we can take it off from there.
2: Well, what I was trying to do with the book was show that corruption uh, in our government is far more than, than, than Tom DeLay or Duke Cunningham or vote-buying scandals. That Corruption in our government is really uh, how money buys our politicians' language and buys the terms of the political debate to a point where when we talk about issues, uh, in particular economic issues, Uh, The terms of the debate are skewed to make sure that outcomes of all public policy debates are those that enhance or enrich big money interests, never outcomes that challenge big money interests.
0: So a good example might be this telecommunications bill. I wonder if you might pick up on that I mentioned before we got started today.
2: Uh, Sure. Uh, the, the, The terms of the debate on the telecommunications bill is a great example. It's, uh, you know, you hear the lobbyists and the, the telecom industry claiming that all they want to do is make sure that the government doesn't regulate uh, the the Internet. Uh, uh, you know, it's essentially it's a free market argument, uh, when in fact what's really going on is they're trying to, uh, to make sure that they can price gouge, uh, they can use... Uh, Taxpayer-funded infrastructure that built the internet uh, to create a two-tiered internet system, and so they want to make it a debate about "quote-unquote" free markets. Uh, when in fact, it's really a debate about whether our government should allow taxpayer-owned and funded uh, infrastructure be used uh, as a way for telecom companies to price gouge the rest of us.
1: Well, let me let me just uh, to step back again to the main. Sort of theme, which I, I, I it's aligned very well in your first chapter. The idea that, and you mentioned that the corruption that that we've talked, about, you, you just uh, the corruption of certain politicians like Duke Cunningham and stuff. That that isn't really the issue you're you're focusing on. You're focusing on the sort of systemic, the systemic, the way the process works itself that we have become so accustomed to that it's not even considered to be corruption. It's it's just. It's the, it's the the ether of how things work. Well, the drug companies, of course the drug companies are influencing the legislation about, you know, the healthcare care system. Uh, and that that's not even a question, is the, which in fact is an outrageous thing, that they've taken control of all these, these aspects. But yet somehow that's, right. that's, that's become, right. oh, it's just normal.
2: That's right. Business as usual in <laughs> Washington, D.C. is really corrupt. Uh, uh, w- it's legalized bribery uh, that has become mundane. So... Nobody really thinks about the implications of the drug companies writing the Medicare bill, the energy companies writing the energy bill, the credit card companies writing the bankruptcy bill. Really, they no more about it than bills. Bills because they're, they give huge amounts of campaign contributions to lawmakers, who then reward them with that kind of access. What's what's really going on, of course, is that when we go to the gas pump and pay three dollars or three dollars and fifty cents a gallon, that has something if not a lot to do with the fact that the oil industry is writing our energy policy. When we get charged a huge amount uh, of interest on our credit card payments, that's because the credit card companies are being allowed to write interest regulations. Uh, So this corruption, this systemic corruption that has become business as usual, is very seriously (laughs) affecting ordinary Americans' day-to-day economic challenges.
0: So the uh, the credit card that you mentioned that that was uh, recently within the last year was passed the uh, legislation of changing the uh, conditions uh, for bankruptcy, making it much more difficult for individuals to file for bankruptcy and to vacate their debts. I wonder if you might say a bit about that. I noticed you, you commented in your book about the, the the nature, the origin of typical individual bankruptcy, and how this yeah, is yeah. affected by the this new legislation, re- relatively well, recent well,
2: legislation. Well, the legislation, how it was sold to the public, was really a case study in what I'm talking about. It. it was sold to the public as um, a measure to crack down on irresponsible people. The storyline was that uh, there are many, many irresponsible people who are who are burdening society and abusing bankruptcy protections. And so uh, the theory was we have to eliminate bankruptcy protections to stop these so-called abuse, uh, abuses by irresponsible people. What the facts were, of course, is that uh, Harvard University has done extensive studies on the people who file bankruptcy, and most people who file bankruptcy, I think it's above 80%, file bankruptcy because of a death in the family, uh, skyrocketing health care bills, or a loss of a job. Uh, now, I don't qu- call that uh, necessarily irresponsible, and I don't think the lawmakers, if they were ever confronted with that, would have the nerve to call uh, those 80% irresponsible. But what they wanted to do was create a storyline that never never really delved into who's filing bankruptcy in order to do the credit card industry's bidding. The credit card industry uh, wants to be able to gouge people with high interest rates as much as possible. So they had to create a storyline that didn't just come out and say, this bill is for, is for us to gouge you. Uh, and what my book lays out is how that myth was developed, uh, how it was very well crafted, and how it was aligned.
0: It's amazing uh, when that whole thing passed. I mean, the, uh, as you well know, uh, the credit card companies already uh, already charge you know extortionate interest rates. I mean, twenty percent right. is entirely common. And the point being, of course, that that price is in the the risk that they take for people the percentage of people who don't pay back. And yet, that isn't good enough. We now have to also indemnify them against uh, against bankruptcy. Right. On top of that, when, as David points out, from the point of view of the average person, the the amount of people who are just abusive in this is trivial, and at any rate, that kind of abuse is already fraudulent behavior. It's already criminal. I mean, you can't that's go
2: exactly. That's, that's exactly right. And the credit card industry is not exactly uh, uh, struggling to make money uh, when there when there were stronger bankruptcy protections. But perhaps most disgusting about that bill, of course, was how the bill simultaneously strengthened the bankruptcy protections for the very wealthy. Uh, the same mm. bill that gutted ordinary consumers' bankruptcy protections included provisions, for instance, to uh, expand bankruptcy protections for those who have more than two million dollars in business debts. so you can go tens of thousands of dollars into debt paying for a let's say your health care bill uh, uh... and be charged thirty fifty seventy five percent interest rates uh... and not be able to get any bankruptcy protections whatsoever but if you're a corporate executive and you rip off min- millions of dollars from your employees and your shareholders Uh, you get to get more uh, expansive bankruptcy protections. You're treated better. And that's because, of course, the executives uh, uh, and the wealthy uh, have bought a seat at the table to make sure that they're protected while the rest of us are thrown to the wolves.
1: So we're talking with David Sirota, who's written a new book called Hostile Takeover. And um, you can give us a call at uh, 412-621-9728. So yeah, that's a very, a very, an excellent point, uh, um, and it's described uh, very well in your book. And one of the nice things about the way your book is organized is that you can quickly flip through the book and see um, uh, titles um, or I don't know, things, uh, more, uh, sections in boldface, such as "Lie: colon, If you just pay your bills on time, you won't be punished." Uh, lies, uh, myth, bankruptcy queens have it easy. <laughs> Uh, myth government handouts are enough to prevent people from going broke uh, lie you have to be irresponsible to go bankrupt and so these are the kinds of the story, as you say was was sort of laid out uh, and, and sort of regurgitated by the mainstream media and um, the whole thing was sold by by, by, the, by this method um, anyway the book is is, is uh, very good in the way that it sort of simplifies and and focuses your attention on these, these, these myths and lies, uh, that if you read enough of them, and I don't know how you could continue to read them and, and, and understand them and still go along with what's happening.
2: Yeah, well, the idea is that somebody, that a reader can be sitting there and watching television, watching the evening news, and hear one of these topics come up, uh, because this book co- covers, I think, uh, almost all the, the very big economic issues that ordinary citizens face. And that you can be watching the news, or listening to the radio, or reading the newspaper, and see a politician or a pundit talk about one of these issues, and you can quickly flip to the section about that issue and see how you're being lied to, uh, and what the motivation behind the lie is, because there is a motivation. The motivation, again, as I said at the beginning, is to make sure that every outcome of every public policy debate is one or another policy that enriches and further uh, uh, further enhances the interests of big money. Uh, often at odds with the interests of ordinary
0: citizens. Yeah. So two examples of that I wanted to mention. Uh, one that I know you've been recently on television. Uh, I saw you, I saw a little segment with you on MSNBC with uh, John Stossel, if I'm not mistaken, discussing the uh, minimum, minimum wage, wage bill, which is also being uh, considered uh, on the Hill uh, these days. I wondered if you might want to uh, recap that a little bit and, and right. discuss the terms of that uh, so-called debate.
2: Right. Well, ABC News' John Stossel, uh, a very, very right-wing pundit, uh, has been spreading the lie that, that raising the minimum wage hurts job growth, and hurts, hurts uh, ordinary, ordinary citizens, and, and and particularly hurts low-wage workers. It's totally counterintuitive, and he thinks he wants people to believe that he's come up with such an incredible, amazing, uh, uh, story that's really true. That actually, when you raise the minimum wage, it hurts, hurts low-income workers. Well, in fact, that's a complete lie. Uh, the states that have raised their minimum wage higher than the federal level actually create, have created jobs at a faster rate than states that have not raised their minimum wage. Now, some have said, well, you know, how do you know there's a direct connection between raising the minimum wage and, and that increased job growth? Well, there might not be a connection. I certainly think there is a connection, because if you put money in the pockets of people who are, are, are low-income, they're going to spend it pretty fast and spend it right in their communities. But even if it's not uh, a direct correlation, it certainly means that raising the minimum wage isn't a job destroyer, as Stossel and big money interests who are fighting a raise in the minimum wage want us to believe. Uh, uh, additionally, um, we have some evidence about how. Uh, in specific, there is a causative relationship between the minimum wage and actually increasing job growth, uh, specifically among low-income workers. In Oregon, in 1998, when that state raised its minimum wage, uh, welfare people on welfare, their incomes went up uh, significantly, and their job opportunities, their, their employment levels, uh, uh, shot up. Uh, again, this is uh, this this is exactly what the minimum wage is supposed to do. You put people, it, put money in the pockets of people who need it the most. They're going to spend it directly in their communities and put, give a shot in the arm to their local communities and their local job market.
1: So you know you can always come up with. Well, first of all, I saw I saw the segment about Stossel with you talking to Stossel and. Um, his, his objection was, well, you know, you want to give the, 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 new, job, the new entry level job uh, guy a chance, and if you have the minimum wage too high, that employer will just not hire that person, and therefore you reduce, the, you, you know, you pre- prevent these jobs uh, from even existing. Be- be- well, first of all, if you're talking about high school kids or something like that, then you could have, and I'm not advocating this, but you could have, if this was a real big problem, you could have an exemption on the minimum wage for kids under 18 or something. Um, sure, and I, and, but I, and I think that that, that was really step, a problem.
2: We should step back for a second and say, look, I don't think we're at a point in our country where we have a problem where the minimum wage is too high <laughs> uh, or where Good. even proposals to raise the minimum wage are too high. The minimum wage today is at a 50-year low in terms of real purchasing power. Last I checked that during those, the last 50 years and the minimum wage was relatively higher in terms of real dollars our economy was doing just fine in fact it was doing much better than it was today uh... so the whole concept that we're that raising the minimum wage hurts our economy or that or that we're suddenly we're talking about raising the minimum wage to a level that's 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 historically higher than it has been during a ec- good economic times is just it just doesn't hold water it's it's a total lie designed to keep wages in this country down to to perpetuate the status quo, which we've found out recently uh, is completely um, is completely destructive. Right now, uh, recent recently, uh, Commerce Department data uh, came out that showed right now uh, the share of national income going to workers' wages is at a 40-year low. Uh, so that means that more money is going, uh, more of our national income is going to shareholders and corporate executives, and less of our money are going to the hardworking uh, uh, Americans, the vast majority of Americans, who earn a paycheck. Uh, and that really that's, that's really uh, says a lot about the priorities of this government and the laws that are allowing this kind of, um, uh, uh, the, the, the benefits of America's economy to go to fewer and fewer people.
0: And uh, it's amazing, uh, as you say. I mean, even when I recall, it must have been approximately 10 years ago or so. I don't remember exactly. The last time the minimum wage was raised, and of course the you know the Republicans were all were all hooting and hollering that the uh, the world was going to end. This would be a complete collapse and devastation of the economy. Of course, you know the Clinton era is famous for its economic boom period. The correlation between those two uh, events doesn't seem to get noticed very much. Uh, we're still back to uh, oh my God, if we raise it to 7.25, the, the the entire economy is going to collapse, and you know the world will end. It's uh, quite uh, incredible. And I, and I wonder, wh- why do people fall for this?
2: Well, I don't think people fall for it. I, I definitely don't think the, pu- the public falls for it. You look at uh, public opinion polls, and it shows that uh, uh, upwards of 80 percent of the public supports raising the minimum wage. In fact, there was an abuse from, uh, from 2005 which showed that I believe it was at least two-thirds, and I think it was, think, think it was three-quarters, of the Republican base actually supports raising the minimum wage. So I don't think the public is fooled. I think that uh uh the the politicians uh, are basically bought off. They don't feel comfortable coming coming out out on uh, standing behind the podium and just saying, "Listen, I'm I'm bought off." So they have to come up with these storylines that everybody knows is is fake, that everyone knows is false, and uh you know, and and the, the the lies continue. Uh but I think especially on the issue of the minimum wage, uh we're getting to a point where where the lies are becoming so brazen, the situation is becoming so dire that I think we're going to see uh, uh, some move to to change the situation.
0: Uh, Another point you raised I touched on earlier I wanted to bring up with you and you devote some time to in your book is the whole issue of health care and medical expenses. I mentioned one thing that comes to mind. This is obviously a very broad issue, but one little incident that comes to mind that we talked about and left out was the, uh, the, uh, the most recent, uh, the bill uh, for Medicare bill that was passed a few years ago, in which they made it illegal for the U.S. government to negotiate drug prices with uh, pharmaceutical companies for drugs that we taxpayers are buying through Medicare program. I wonder if you could right. pick that and, up.
2: And, and what we should remember is that uh, businesses, large and small negotiate with the drug companies to lower lower their prices right. all the time right. businesses come to the drug companies with, with with their purchasing power they say listen we got this many uh... thousand employees uh... so we you should we're gonna have to buy this many drugs uh, this much medicine for their health plan, so uh, we'd like you, because we're buying in bulk, we'd like you to give us a, a price break. What the federal government has done with 9 million Medicare uh, uh, recipients, uh, we could negotiate lower prices with the drug companies because that's a huge, a huge purchasing pool. Uh, but what the pharmaceutical industry made sure to do was insert a provision in the Medicare bill that actually prohibits the government uh, uh, from saving taxpayers money. It prohibits the government from using the same practices that every other business in this country uses, uh, uh, which is negotiating lower prices with the drug companies, so as to make sure that as much taxpayer money as possible is simply handed over to the pharmaceutical industry, an industry that spends tens of millions of dollars on campaign contributions and lobbying Congress. This was a brazen giveaway of taxpayer money to one of the wealthiest industries in the world. Uh and it was uh it was uh you know, it happened in the dead of night, uh and Congress approved it.
1: Was that the Orin Hatch thing? He it was a secret it was a secret who had put this in the bill and then finally somehow that somebody revealed it? Was that Orin Hatch who did it?
2: Uh no, that was a separate thing. That was a that was a that's another story that was detailed oh. in my book about how <laughs> okay. how Orrin Hatch actually slipped in a uh, a patent extension
3: oh, uh, right. for
2: mm-hmm. I believe it was Claritin. Uh uh the the patent on Claritin was coming Coming up for expiration, so that it could be produced at a lower price by generic companies, and Orrin Hatch actually tried to anonymously slip in a provision to an unrelated bill that ex- that extended clarence patent. Obviously, a huge amount of money, a huge boon to to the company that produces Claritin. Uh, luckily, he was uh, he was exposed. But it shows you, it makes you wonder how many things are being slipped into these bills that we never hear about that that, that slip in without public scrutiny.
0: Oh, for sure. Going back just for a moment to that drug bill, I mean, I think uh, listeners, I think many people I know who I've told about this, I think pretty much uh, don't believe me. Because, I mean, it's so shocking to think about this, right, that we are legally obliged to pay for medication. We taxpayers to pay for medication. We're we, we legally obliged to pay... Whatever it is, the drug companies want to charge us. Can you That's believe exactly that? Right. That's exactly, I, literally know, what it does. It's, yeah, it's and, totally and, you know,
2: amazing. Book, the drug, drug industry price gouging has a long history in this country. Uh, back in 1996, um, and well, since well before 1996, we had a, a law that said when taxpayers fund the research and development of a, of a drug, uh right. the, when we hand over that research and development to the private drug industry uh and the private pharmaceutical companies that they when they bring the drug to market they have to reward taxpayers by offering it to us at a quote fair and reasonable price well uh in 1996 that provision in the law was revoked by president clinton uh and so now when taxpayers fund the research and development of a drug uh, and hand it over to the private pharmaceutical companies for, bring, for, for bringing it to market. Uh, we are now charged the highest prices in the world for those drugs. Uh, and, you know, we fund right now one-third, we the taxpayers, one-third of all medical and pharmaceutical research and development that goes on uh, through the National Institutes of Health. And, again, we are rewarded for our investment by being price gouged with the highest prices for prescription drugs in the world. It is quite literally a form of robbery.
1: Well, the the argument they give, and you you obliterate this in the book. The argument is that well, they need these this money to develop new drugs. <laughs> and, right. um, and we I, talk you know, about but, the but, amount of innovation, and the amount of costs compared to compared to they spend more on PR and selling the marketing, drugs marketing, marketing, marketing. They spend more on marketing than they sell, than they spend on developing much more. So, David, do you I have I some agree. facts but on even that? even
2: if you hmm? even if you even if you accept their argument that they have to they have to recover their investment, well shouldn't taxpayers be they able to, to
0: recover their investment good point but the the amount that they spend on marketing is extraordinary everyone knows this none and i'm not just talking about commercials ask any physician what unbelievable boondoggles they get from the drug companies to go to you know fake <laughs> conferences in the caribbean or you know get tickets to any uh, you know to the all-star game next week or whatever it's easy easy I easy easy crack down on some of you know? those things they'll, they'll, give them, they'll give them pens and stuff but
1: they all <laughs> there was a really funny they sponsor
0: these fake conferences That's for sure. Yeah. Okay. And well, there was a funny thing on
1: it. the Colbert Report, or was it John Stewart, where they had um, one of the correspondents um, they they they've been hiring beauty queens to go and try to you know well, market sure, these yeah.
0: drugs to the doctors. Well, the drug reps are famously attractive. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> they hired up the Miss Florida, <laughs> and this yeah. guy's interviewing her, and he's just like drooling. <laughs>
0: Yeah. That's hilarious <laughs> it's Very funny. But the thing is on the cost of medical care uh, Maybe I should take a moment to mention to our listeners We're talking to David Sirota Who's the author of a new book called Hostile Takeover How Big Money and Corruption Conquered Our Government And How We Can Take It Back uh, And you're welcome to call us as usual 412-268-9728 268-WRCT uh, If you'd like to talk to David we'd be happy to take your call So going back to this uh, uh, issue of medical care, I mean, again, with expense, there's some statistic I don't have at my fingertips, but you may, uh, which uh, compares the cost of health care in the U.S. to the outcomes, to our quality of health uh, of Americans uh, compared to, for example, other developed countries like Western Europe or Japan. I wonder if you could pick that up.
2: Well, I don't have the stats directly in front of me other than to say that that in 2000, the World Health Organization uh, looked at the overall health, uh, and health systems of, of, of the world. And they ranked America number 36. Uh, we are led to believe we live in the best health care system in the world and certainly is the best health care system for those who can afford it. But when you actually look at the system and how it provides for everybody, uh, uh, it, it is a very, very poor system. You know, one in five Americans right now uh, does not have any health insurance whatsoever. Uh, roughly one in three Americans are forced to go without health insurance uh, at least one time over over a course of two years uh... so this is not a system that uh... is providing good health care uh... in the in the whole in the in the holistic sense
0: in fact one uh, might even uh, one might even excuse me one might even say it's rationed
2: uh, Well, absolutely <laughs> and of course that's the argument that that um... you know that 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 off politicians will tell us why they don't want a single-payer government guaranteed health care system they'll say well if we have that, we'll have rationing. Well, guess what? We have rationing right now. Uh we have rationing right now in the form of again, one in five people can't afford health health insurance. But even those who are in HMOs, the Supreme Court ruled in one of their rulings in two thousand one that HMOs are quite literally set up in order to ration health care. So we already are rationing health care in this country. Uh and I would argue that a single payer government sponsored health care system is the only way for us, our country, to save money on health care and provide it to all citizens. Right now, the private health insurance company wastes, uh, I think it's uh, 20 cents on for every dollar spent on uh, health care administration, administrative costs, paperwork, mm-hmm. uh, insurance companies talking to each other and negotiating with each other.
3: And we all uh, know, you know.
2: A, a single-payer health care system, let's just look at Medicare, which is a single-payer system. Uh, their Medicare's administrative cost is 4%. Uh, so the question is, why don't we simply expand Medicare to cover everybody? Uh, we would, our country would ultimately save a huge amount of money, uh, we, and, and people who are in Medicare, by the way, polls show people who are in Medicare are far more happy with their medical care than people in the private system. Uh, and, and so you ask yourself, why haven't we extended Medicare to everybody? Well, because the private system is making a huge amount of money. Uh, you know, we heard recently that the CEO of UnitedHealth in recent years, has made a total of $1.5 billion in personal compensation. He's the kind of guy who buys access to the political table and makes sure that there, are, there isn't real health reform because he's doing quite fine.
1: Yeah, there was um, another interesting uh, quote in your book, um, or comment you made in the book about um, Dick Cheney. Whenever Dick Cheney has a heart attack or something, uh, he goes to a government hospital to get right. the best medical care.
2: Right. You don't hear the politicians <laughs> the VA, who, who who berate you know quote unquote big government health care. You don't hear them berating their own their own healthcare, even though it is it is provided by the government. Right. So that's, that's sh- because they make sure that their government health care <laughs> system is well funded.
1: Right. right. It Very also just point. shoots shoots a uh, full of holes the whole notion that that you know you have to have uh, the, the corporations or have to run everything. They have to have free enterprise and competition to have something of high quality. That's right.
0: So it uh, brings us to a, a, a part of your book uh, toward the end, which is, uh, I and mean, the subtitle is What We Can Do About It. And before I make a transition to that, I wanted to mention, you know, my own, I'm sure yours and my own frustration, which is it's very difficult to have any faith in either party uh, to, to do anything about this, because it seems to me they're both equally compromised. And I'll, I'll quote a little example that that galled me, was one of the first votes that Barack Obama, who many people look to for leadership from the liberal side of the Democratic Party, or as Howard Dean Inside the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party, voted for the uh, this uh, this uh, bankruptcy bill, and I was totally. Well, oh, he didn't
2: was- vote for the bankruptcy bill, but he did. He did vote for. Uh, there was an amendment that would have limited credit card interest rates to 30%, which is already a huge astronomical amount. He voted against that amendment.
0: I see. Okay, That's my mistake then, because I seem to remember that it was. Uh, but in any case, my point is, is that uh, of course he's not my not my senator, so it's not even directly pertained to me. But the thing is, who do you look to for leadership, and what do we do about it?
2: Well, I, in my book, I have a, each chapter has a set of what I call heroes, people who are in the system fighting the system. So I try to give, let people know that there are good people and they're fighting for us. Uh, but I have a whole chapter on what we can do about it. And, you know, the, the two major things that come out of the chapter uh, are, one, that we should focus more of our political activism locally uh, instead of only at the White House level, uh, that the hostile takeover of our government is far less pronounced as you go down the political food chain and that ordinary citizens can have a, a real impact at, their, at the state, local, and municipal level, that these state, local, and municipal issues often affect our economic lives in as profound a way as national politics. That these state, local, and municipal leaders are tomorrow's uh, national, congressional, gubernatorial, and presidential uh, 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 officials, and we have to get to them now and let these folks know that they'll be rewarded for a politics that stands up for us, and they'll be punished if they will if they uh, sell out to big money interests. The second thing I think we need to do is put. Public financing of elections at the center of our activism. That we need to create a system in this country, a national system, whereby people can run for office uh, and not have to rely on money from corporations and the wealthy, money that comes with expectations of legislative favors. We've got to give good people who want to run for office uh, a pool of resources to run for office, where it doesn't come with expectations. It's not a liberal or a conservative idea. It's not a Republican or a Democratic idea. You know, Maine, the state of Maine, the state of Connecticut, Democratic states, they have public financing. Uh, the state of Arizona, very conservative state, uh, Bush state, uh, they have public financing. So, so this is an issue that transcends party that, uh, that I think uh, its time is due.
0: Well, on that note, uh, I think we can uh, possibly uh, wrap it up then. Uh, David, uh, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today on Left Out. We very much enjoyed having you as a guest. I want to mention to our listeners again, uh, David's new book, Hostile Takeover, How Big Money and Corruption Conquered Our Government and How We Take It Back, which I think I recommend uh, highly to all of our listeners, have a look at it. It's a very pleasant and easy read, and with all the information that you really need to uh, to garner right at your fingertips, of nicely presented, and uh, you should take a look. Uh, David, David Carter, thank you very much for appearing on Left Out.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Okay, we'll take a brief uh, musical break, and we'll be back in, in a couple of minutes. Uh, I think Matt Hill has music queued up for us, I hope. Well, welcome back to Left Out on WRCT 88.3 FM. We've been talking to uh, David Sirota, author of a new book called Hostile Takeover, How Big Money and Corruption Conquered Our Government and How We Can Take It Back. It was a very enjoyable uh, period of uh, discussion with David. He's a very articulate person, and he has a very uh, very nicely put-together book, which will uh, provide a handy reference for a lot of uh, arguments uh, on uh, on contemporary uh, political issues. Uh, your listeners are welcome to call us at 412 268 Particularly when when we have a guest, I wanted to mention that it's often difficult for us to break in uh, uh, immediately to take your call uh, uh, because uh, the person is often talking. and would rather let them speak, and then we can jump in when we get the chance. As a matter of fact, we seem to have a caller right now, so caller, go ahead before the next uh, segment of the program.
4: Hello. Hi. Hi. Welcome to
0: Left Out. Thanks for calling.
4: Thank you. I enjoyed the interview. I had to pull over and um, try to call him, but that's okay. Oh, okay. You can probably answer my question. I was wondering if David Sirota's book addresses how our choices for natural health are also limited. Um, personally, I don't really want to get it, the government involved in uh, natural health uh, remedies and things of that nature because uh, I just don't trust the government mm. <laughs> that way. And it's I can afford to buy my supplements and buy good food and uh, go see a natural doctor, it, it, that costs me less than buying health insurance. Well, and so that's how I work it, and I'd like to keep it that way. But uh, they are kind of, uh, they being the government and uh, the drug industry, are limiting my choices by, uh, for instance, this act that they're trying to pass through. It's the Food uh, Uniformity Act. Where they won't allow states to put labels on foods like no GMO or um, that's
1: awful. The the idea, the whole labeling issue, is really really another thing that I don't think David talks about that in his book. But I think it's 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 uh, they're trying to weaken the the we already weak labeling laws that we have exactly. Um, but anyway, but uh, thank you for your call. And I I don't think David uh, this book addresses those issues, but. Um, Thank you for calling.
0: Uh, thanks for calling. That's a very good point. Uh, eat well and live right. That's the first uh, first line of defense in healthcare. Uh, so we have a little news item here that I wanted to read to you from uh, Bill Mon's Whiskey Bar. A uh, press release from called uh, Entertainment News Tonight. The Pentagon Channel today announced that the cancellation of its long-running TV series, the Abu Zarqawi Hour, saying that tonight's special effects extravaganza, in which Kiefer Kiefer Sutherland and a team of secret agents trail the terrorist mastermind to his hideout and call in a massive airstrike, would be the show's last. The show originally piloted in 2003 and found a regular place in the Pentagon Channel's primetime lineup in February 2004, replacing the widely panned sitcom Mission Accomplished, now in syndicated reruns on Fox News. The abu our Hour de- debuted to generally favorable reviews, with the New York Times critic Dexter Filkins praising the show for its imaginative storytelling and gritty realism. However, rating declined sh- ratings declined sharply in 2005, with many viewers complaining that the show's episodes, which frequently featured the death and or capture of Zarqawi's closest lieutenants, had become repetitive and unimaginative. Critics reacted particularly negatively to this year's four-hour special in which Zarkawi had obvious difficulty staying in character and was unable to properly reload and fire his Kalashnikov rifle. Although some critics defended the sequence as a daring experiment in Brechtian uh, a- alienation technique, most, most panned the performance saying it was extremely hard for the audience to believe that Zarkawi was actually a seasoned terrorist leader instead of a paid actor pretending to be a terrorist. <laughs> Doubts about the show's viability deepened in April after Washington Post TV critic Tom Ricks questioned whether the supposedly spontaneous reality show was actually being scripted by its producers. Over the next few weeks, insiders say, Pentagon Channel executives determined that while the Zarkawi show still had a dedicated following of hardcore fans who would swallow any plot device no matter how ludicrous, the series no longer made commercial or artistic sense. It was also believed that the spectacular and upbeat finality might lure viewers away from Haditha, the controversial docudrama now air on the rival reality network. Network sources say the Pentagon Channel is weighing a possible sequel to the Abu Zarqawi Hour, featuring an identical plot but a completely different cast. The network and Zarqawi have permanently severed their relationship these sources added due to irreconcilable creative differences. Pentagon Channel officials declined to respond to questions about a possible sequel, saying only that all options are under consideration, things related and things not. Mr. Zarqawi was unavailable for a comment. That's from Bill Mons Whiskey Bar, uh, which uh, a press release that came out a couple of weeks ago that I thought I would pass on to you. And I also mention the related article, the the review by Thomas Ricks that he refers to, uh, entitled Military Plays Up the Role of Zarqawi, which was dated April tenth, two 2006, an important uh, article in which uh, it points out that the Back in April, before all of the hoo-ha last week, about two weeks ago, about how uh, we have uh, you know, dealt a death blow to the insurgency in Iraq, har har, uh, how the U.S. military, quotes is conducting a propaganda campaign to magnify the role of the leader of the al-Qaeda in Iraq, according to internal military documents and officers familiar with the program. The effort has raised his profile in a way that some military intelligence officials believe may have overstated his importance and helped the Bush administration tie the war to the organization responsible for the September 11, 2001 attacks. This is uh, April 10, 2006. Uh, my message here is pay attention, people. You're being, you're being conned yet again. Uh, Matt, was that a call on the line that you were saying? No, no call. Okay. So uh, have a look. We have uh, links to these articles uh, on the uh, on the uh, left out website.
1: Right. So the Zarkawi thing was uh, right. It was played in a very strange media. I mean that that takes advantage of the. It puts together all these different things we saw about him. We saw yeah. the the strange video where he was shown we, ineptly to shoot him.
0: ineptly trying. Right. To That's be... supposed
1: to convince us that he's <laughs> some sort of terrorist god. Exactly right. It, it, the whole thing was just
0: yeah. weird. But the idea that this is somehow the linchpin of the insurgency—it's exactly like Vietnam. I mean, you know, it was every other week we were killing another general from the North Vietnamese army, and you know, we were dealt them the death blow. It was the end of their the end of the, uh, the, line, and, the end of the tunnel. Yeah. yeah oh, absolutely, yes. absolutely. Week after week after week after week, and uh, and so here we have another with the uh, the with the end of the Zarkawi show. But you you'll notice, as Billman accurately predicted in that press release, they've already started naming his supposed successor because you see the image they want want to create in your mind is that there's this hierarchy and there's guys at the top and this was the guy at the top and they killed the guy at the top and now there's a new guy at the top. They want to create the image that it's like the mafia or something. And yeah. in my own opinion is a, a grotesque misunderstanding of what is going on here. I mean, we're occupying this country. There's an insurgency. We've created a civil war. The civil war is not going to end. Zarqawi is not responsible for the civil war. Zarqawi is a figure of no importance in the conduct of that civil war. And I predict will make no difference whatsoever whatsoever of any kind to the violence is going on in Iraq, and in fact, if you look at it, uh, it just today, yeah, sixty more people were killed. Soldiers are killed every single day. I mean, it just goes on and on. The bloodshedding is extreme and grotesque, and uh, and it's uh, it's just preposterous. But uh, as Billmon uh, pointed out, uh, there's a substantial audience of people, the hardcore fans, who will sla- swallow any plot device, no matter how ludicrous, and uh, that certainly does seem does seem to be does seem to be true. So, so uh, lines are
1: still lines are still open if uh, if you want to give us a call at uh, 412-268-9728. So uh well you have some other things you want to well yes sure I want to talk about issues.
0: the while we're on this while we well, the subject uh, very pertinent is uh, some uh, recent uh, coverage I've seen uh, by Glenn Greenwald uh, on uh, and the and, and PR Watch which is the uh, the Center for Media and Democracy uh, exposing uh, fake news so this is a uh, uh, this is in a uh, this is something that has been a growing problem in the U.S. which is the widespread use of what are called video news releases uh, that are being uh, being pawned off as news by typically by local affiliates of uh, large networks. And guess what the largest networks are that are doing this? Fox News and uh, help me on Clear this. Clear Channel? Uh, cl- not Clear Channel, but uh, the ones oh, who Oh, MSNBC? Are, no, no, the ones who are who sponsored the, who were promoting the anti-carry uh, documentary Liberty Channel. or Sinclair. Sinclair, exactly, Sinclair. Yes, Between Sinclair and the Fox Network, their local affiliates tend to be the prime offenders, but they're not the only ones. So we have a link to a a report by the Center for Media and Democracy uh, documenting the use of these video news releases which are prepared um, by corporations and in some cases by the government possibly the corporations on behalf of the government are being prepared and are being passed off as straight news items. In fact what they're doing is not only there, there are various forms of the deception one is to just play the, play the VNR straight and not comment on where it came from and that it was bought and paid for and that's why it's being shown. But some go even further than that to overdub the voice of their own local correspondent or to put in um, you know, captions uh, claiming that this is uh, this is a news item that is produced by the local station, attributing to them when in fact it's nothing of the kind. In other words, it's a fraud. It's an absolute fraud. So in a ten, over a 10-month period, the Center for Media and Democracy documented the television new, newsroom's use of 36 VNR's video news releases, a small sample of the thousands that are produced e- each year. Uh, CMD identified 77 television Stations from the largest to the smallest markets, including Pittsburgh. By the way, Fox News, uh, which is uh, Fox fifty-three, I think it is of the channel, it was uh, do, is doing this, as, according to the Center for Media and Democracy. So it's not uh, it uh, affects us here at home as well as uh, uh, everyone else across the country. They Identified seventy-seven stations, when small markets and large markets. In other words, this is not driven by the economic considerations of the small markets. This is. Out and out propaganda, and this is corporate collusion to deceive and uh, to deceive you, um, as they aired these VNRs and related satellite media tours in 98 separate instances without disclosure. These 77 stations reached more than half of the US population. The VNRs and SMTs were broadcast, uh, uh, were, were produced by three broadcast PR firms and for 49 different clients, including General Motors, Intel, Pfizer, Capital One. In each case, they disguised the sponsored content to make it appear to be their own reporting. In almost all cases, stations failed to balance the client's messages with independently gathered footage or basic journalistic research. More than a third of the time, the stations aired the prepackaged VNR in its entirety. So this is uh, this is really constitutes a form of uh, propaganda and in many cases I think it the, the question is to what extent is the government directly involved and as we know the Bush administration for example you'll recall uh, Jeff Gannon the uh, the fake uh, reporter who was in the White House newsroom in order to bail out Ari Fleischer and uh, and Scott uh, Scott uh, what's his name McClellan the, uh, McClellan, the former uh, former press secretary um, by, by calling on him you know who could reliably ask some inane uh, questions Question. In order to change the subject, Uh, that's an example, or paying off Armstrong Williams or several other reporters to uh, produce their own uh, so-called news items, which they pretend are theirs, but in fact are fed to them, which are illegal government propaganda. And I want to mention that this is expressly against federal law for the U.S. government to propagandize in this manner. Now, well, for this, corporations these are, these are to US do U.S.
1: government things, these were mostly corporate things. The well, Vietnam the question
0: was. is who's behind them, and what I'm saying is that yes, these particular things were for corporations. Is not illegal, but it's rather unethical, and it's clearly meant to deceive. And I would say the likelihood that the U.S. government is is behind some of these is is, is extreme, particularly when we consider uh, that they've done similar things in Iraq, and this is just a simple boomerang way to uh, to to propagandize the U.S. Uh, the U.S. Uh, population by sort sort of put planting news items in Iraq, which are wholly made up and manufactured. Right. And then they get reported they get back here as, ecotax. oh, look at this. Like, we just happened to notice that there, this thing was reported in the Iraq newspaper that such and such and such and such, you know, well, in fact, it's all, you know, completely starts and ends here. Um, th- these things are, are quite outrageous. And I think most of our listeners know quite well to be skeptical, but it's uh, of what they hear from these uh, corporate uh, corporate uh, media sources. But I, I also, it is worthwhile, I think, to have. Concrete documentation right of specific instances to fall back on because uh, suspicions and, 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 and understandings of what 's really going on are one thing, but having a, having a good uh, audit trail is uh, is always is always useful for the for the uh, deniers, and so I think that 's a very uh, yeah, significant an, item
1: interest, uh, interesting how it relates to the, the discussion with David Sirota also because of the the hostile takeover <clears throat> concept of The government being taken over by corporate interests, and now we have the VNRs, which are a lot of those are corporate as well. So you're getting the the full circle of the propaganda and the control, just like the Soviet – the old Soviet state.
0: That is as exactly as exactly right. You know, it's 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 actually quite remarkable. You and I are old enough to remember the Cold War, and we were brought up during the Cold War. And you know, the the common theme uh, that I was brought up with from the time I was a child were all the things that, for example, you were not permitted to do. And uh, you know, in the Soviet Union, it was always you know, in the Soviet Union, you would wouldn't you wouldn't talk out loud. You wouldn't criticize the government. You would be afraid for for retribution because your your phone was tapped. You know, all of your and, right. you, and no one you could talk to <clears> could be trusted. Uh, oh. And the Soviet Union is the kind of place where they, they lock people up without charge or trial uh, under extreme circumstances and engage in torture uh, and throw people in prison for their political views uh, at the whim of the government without any procedure of any kind whatsoever. And uh, now Shut what down we see
1: newspapers that are critical of the uh, the, the government, if there are any
0: and, uh, and, 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 and of course we don 't do that kind of thing well w- uh, we don 't but the Republicans do, and the Republicans unfortunately have the control of our government, and the sooner we uh, put a stop to that, the sooner we 're on a direction that uh, that we can uh, at least towards uh, bringing things back the way they ought to be. And uh, and uh, I hope that we'll uh, we'll we'll start that process this fall with the 2006 elections coming up, starting with our very own. Illustrious Senator Rick Santorum, who is lying through his teeth, uh, desperately trying to find any anything, a grasp at any read uh, including last week uh, announcing that we, after all, had found weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Oh, what that knows. has to do with his, yeah, what, what that has to do with his his Senate campaign? I have no idea. I suppose it's just that he's he's so inextricably associated with Bush that his only strategy is to try to make Bush look good because uh, being stuck with uh, being being twinned with Bush as he is uh, is Turning into an enormous liability, but you know what, Ricky? Um, You are twinned with Bush. (laughs) You are Bush's boy, and you are a corporate boy, and you do serve your corporate masters. And the electorate is going to vote you out of office. I predict in November, and we will have a party. Yes, we have have a phone call. Uh, We have a caller in line. Go ahead, please.
3: Hi, yeah, my name's Jim. Hi, Jim.
0: Uh, Thank you for calling Left Out.
3: Thank you. I just want to say that you know I really enjoyed you know programs like yours and others on the radio.
0: Thank you very much. But,
3: um, just general comments. Like a couple minutes ago, you know, you're talking about uh, there's really no difference between the Republicans and the Democrats, and now you want to say we have to get rid of Bush. I mean, I mean, like I'm a Democrat, and it's like I think part of the problem is we're always saying all these bad things, and, but there's no way we can solve them. But one of the things is you just get the Republicans out, and I think sometimes the idea of I think sometimes people were too quote unquote left wing and liberal, and they're saying the Democrats are just as bad. That's not true.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. They're not as bad. And we, and we were lulled. That was one of the things that happened in 2000. A lot of people were saying that about Bush and Gore. And as we know very well by the trajectory that followed since 2000, there's been a, an immense difference
0: between those, those two. That's a, well, so that's a valid point. I think the point I made with David Sirota is that it's, uh, you're right to say that it's wrong to say that there's no difference. That's absolutely the case. But it's also the case that I personally feel disappointed that there are so few uh, Democrats who are willing and able to take a leadership on many important issues like the ones we were talking about with David. Um, like, in, for example, in health care, or we didn't talk with David, but another issue in Social Security, or the Iraq War, they just cave in. And I think it's a pity that the Democratic Party, there's so few people in the Democratic Party are able to take uh, take significant stands on hard issues, like, uh, for example, the Iraq War.
3: Oh, I, okay, yeah, I, I definitely agree with you on that. It's just, I just wish just the American people would just, like, wake up and start, like, thinking, and stop, like, when... Stupid George Bush lies about, you know, just waving the flag in our face about everything. And just start
0: well, thinking. I agree with that. Uh, we only have a couple minutes remaining, so thank you very thank much you. for your okay, call. I you. wanted to finish with a couple of other remarks. Uh, uh, this remark about uh, the 2000 election reminded me. I recently saw an Inconvenient Truth, which uh, I can uh, I can strongly recommend. Uh, apart from the actual content of the of the, uh, of the of the of the of the movie, which is about the the threat of global warming, um, you should have a look at that. The thing that's really compelling about it is just to recognize, and it really, for me, it was nauseating, to just recognize it's so blatantly obvious that you cannot imagine George Bush speaking so cogently and coherently and logically on any topic whatsoever let alone something like global warming, and you're watching Al Gore exercise real leadership and real intelligence from a very considered position on a very important issue instead of gibberish nonsense that we get from, uh, from, the, the, from the, the boy emperor uh, in Washington. Just think, uh, listeners, you know, put the two side by side. They're not playing in the same league by orders of magnitude. The other thing I want to mention before we close off is there's a beautiful review of a number of books on global warming by Jim Hansen on a current issue of uh, New York Review of Books and that's also linked to on the LeftOut.info website and he, he talks about the overall issue. You may remember Jim Hansen is the guy who's a NASA climate scientist whose work was suppressed and distorted by this fellow uh, Cooney, Philip Cooney, who turned out to be a fraud a lobbyist, who was a two-bit a political the, uh, operative who was uh, overriding and trying to deny the facts and the science of global warming as, re- as uh, was uh, uh, written by by Jim Hansen because it was well, as Al Gore has said, an inconvenient truth. Thank you very much for listening to Left Out. This is the end of our show. We'll be back in in two weeks' time. Thank you very much to Matt Horniak for producing today's program. Uh, thank you for listening.